Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Dr. Stephen Davidson is a clinical sexologist based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, specializing in the treatment of sexual disorders in men, including men with compulsive sexual behavior disorder. He helps men and their partners lead lives that are more erotically fulfilling and emotionally intimate. He is the author of Sexual Integrity, Finding the Courage to Be Yourself. The Sexual Integrity Coach is Dr. Davidson's registered trademark. Today we have Dr. Davidson with us, and we are going to be focusing on a particular theme, a particular topic that he has written about called Sexual Integrity. Welcome, Stephen, to to our podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Of course, the first question to to help our our listeners understand what we're going to be talking about today is, what do you really mean by sexual integrity? Can you help us out with that? Sure. It it is the title of my book, and quite frankly, there are other books out there that have the same phrase in the title, sexual integrity. Mine is sexual integrity, finding the courage to be yourself. And I went with that. And, and also the cover of the book is a man removing a mask. Uh, I chose that because it's a metaphor that comes up in my work with clients often. They bring it up. They say things like, I feel like I'm living a double life. I feel like no one really knows me. I feel like I'm hiding behind a mask. I wish I could remove this mask and just be myself. And that's what I mean by sexual integrity. Let's take off the mask and find out who you really are as a sexual being. And then let's lean into that. Let that be the baseline for where you begin to let the world know who you are as a sexual being and let you look for partners, appropriate partners or relationships from that awareness, that authenticity about who you are as a sexual being, how you understand your sexual identity, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, what you like, what you dislike, what is erotically appealing for you. And let's be transparent with that. Let's not keep that in secrecy or hiding, but uh, have open discussions with your partner about this and let your partner really get to know you as a sexual being, because that's also how we develop intimacy. Mm -hmm. When you're referring to authenticity, what I'm hearing you say is helping your clients understand who they are, what their erotic template is, what, what really matters to them as a sexual being, how to express that congruently, and how to do that, whether they're partnered or, or not partnered. Is, is that correct? Uh, absolutely. And one of the things that we have to check out if they are partnered is is there safety in the relationship for me to be honest with you? Because if I start opening up and I am 
being transparent, I need to trust that you're going to be able to handle that and you're going to appreciate it and respect it and be glad that I want to have an open, honest communication with you about our sexual relationship. And not all relationships have that degree of trust and safety. Mm -hmm. In the past, I've heard a lot of couples talk about this idea of don't ask, don't tell, that there's an understanding in a way, sometimes explicit, sometimes not so explicit, that someone in the relationship will go out and choose to have sexual adventures and the other person may or may not know. So there was, I guess, a lack of transparency. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the, the contrast between a couple that's absolutely transparent and a couple that has more of those vague gray areas? Well, if they have agreed to have gray, vague areas, then I think that's fine. Um, and I know couples that have the don't ask, don't tell policy. That's a policy they both agreed on in their relationship. And so if you're doing that, then you are still in integrity with your partner because you're honoring the agreement that you've both mm -hmm. made together. I see. So no matter what the agreement is between the partners, as long as there is a clear under, uh, mutual understanding, then that the integrity piece, is that right? Absolutely. Um, because, you know, it's your it's your partner that you need to negotiate these things with. And as long as the two of you are comfortable with the plan that you with, it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. what anyone else thinks uh, because there's lots of opinions about sexuality and sexual behavior, but it only matters what you and your partner think and what the agreement is within your relationship. Mm -hmm. So shifting gears a bit, I, I'm wondering why is it so vital that, that we stop referring to compulsive sexual behavior as sex addiction? Before I answer that, let me be clear that when someone presents for treatment for sex addiction or when someone self-identifies as a sex addict, that there clearly is a sexual problem that exists there. There's some sexual issue in their life that needs to be addressed. And there's no doubt that those individuals feel like their sexual behavior is out of control or it's become unmanageable. And so I'm not disputing that a problem exists. I am disputing the approach that we look at sexuality through the lens of addiction. Uh, I think addiction and compulsion are two different concepts. And there are other therapists who would disagree, who would say that addiction, compulsion, habit, that they all mean the same thing. An example that I sometimes use is the example of a compulsive hand washer, mm -hmm. because this is a common compulsion that we know exists in many cultures around the world. And if compulsion and addiction are the same thing, then it would also be accurate to say that the compulsive hand washer is addicted to soap. Well, that mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense. There are people who are compulsive lock checkers. Uh, we could say that they are addicted to doorknobs. Well, that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. either. 
And so getting it right, whether we're calling something a compulsion or an addiction, it influences the treatment plan that we're going to use to help that client. And when we think about addiction, uh, we think that they're treatable, people can be in recovery, but there's not anything we're going to do that's going to cure you so that you can then resume your drug of choice. Abstinence is what we mean by sobriety. Uh, you know, if you're recovering from alcohol or some substance abuse, then sobriety means that you abstain from it and you abstain from it forever. Mm -hmm. But that's not possible with sex. I mean, I guess it is, but who wants to do that? Who wants right. to go the rest of their life without sex? Mm -hmm. And mostly my experience is that for most people, it's not really feasible. It's not realistic. Mm -hmm. I think that it's also dangerous to take something that the brain is hardwired to crave and necessary for our survival, certainly as a species, but also for our healthiest functioning individually, and then label that natural innate drive as an addiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sleeping, eating, breathing, urinating, sex, these are all things that we're born to to do and mm -hmm. have an innate drive to do those things. So I think it's dangerous to start labeling people's innate drives as addictions. Mm -hmm. it, it's very confusing mm -hmm. for people. Yeah, and we've talked quite a bit on, on this podcast about this very issue. And there was a time years ago that I used the term addi sex addiction quite a bit, and I don't anymore. Um, primarily because I don't feel it's helpful to pathologize the behavior and I don't feel it's helpful to stigmatize the behavior in any way. And because we have more research and because the World Health Organization has actually designated compulsive sexual behavior disorder as a category in their big book of disorders, which I don't even like the term disorder personally, but um, but I just want to mention that because I, everything you're saying is absolutely in alignment with what we've been grappling with in general in the field, but certainly within myself and, and in our discussions uh, with various uh, experts like yourself. I used to be someone who used the term sex addiction as well mm -hmm. and pornography addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've taught workshops to other healthcare providers on treating sex addiction and pornography mm -hmm. addiction. At that particular time in my career, I didn't have the knowledge base that I have now about sexual science. It was not until I got a higher degree in clinical sexology that my professors and uh, other peers that I was in class with mm -hmm. began to challenge me on this. And it that caused me to rethink this. But I was already on the way out the door from sex addiction theory anyway. I was working in Nashville, Tennessee, and Tennessee is my home state. Mm. Uh, it's where I lived until four years ago. And I absolutely love so many things in Nashville and, and about the state of Tennessee. But Sexaholics Anonymous is headquartered there in Middle Tennessee. And there are other 12-step programs that deal with sex addiction, but that's the largest one. In that program, in order to be sober, 
you cannot masturbate if you are in a same-sex relationship and you're married to that person. You can't have sex with that person. Mm. Their approach to looking at same-sex behavior is that it's part of an addictive process. Well, you know, we haven't really considered same-sex attraction to be a mental illness since the 1970s. Uh, we dealt with that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're living with your fiance and you're heterosexual, you can't engage in sexual behavior with your fiance. So the only sexual behavior that's allowed in that program in order to stay sober is sex with a heterosexual spouse to whom you are legally married. And that's their sobriety definition. Mm -hmm. they, um, they add into that that there is expected to be a progressive victory over lust, mm -hmm. which means that eventually you don't even think about sex because that's what lust is. It's thinking about sex. Mm -hmm. And so when I was doing workshops, this is what I was up against is some of this rigidity that um, really is a violation of my professional code of ethics. Mm -hmm. And um, and I already knew this. there's no really scientific basis for this. It's just made up by a group of individuals who wanted to have this unique 12-step program to deal with sex mm -hmm. addiction. And so I was already out the, on the way out the door to rethinking all of this. And that kind of prompted me to come up with this model of sexual integrity and to really start coaching people down that mm -hmm. path of developing some control over your sexual behavior, but not from a place of repression and denial, but from a place of honesty and being mindful. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, because I don't think all of our listeners are familiar with Sexaholics Anonymous, my understanding is that it, it comes from the Bible Belt and and that what you just described is is really a very very restrictive um, attempt to uh, establish a a more a better way of working with one's sexual desires basically not that they would use that language but um, can you add anything to that because it is very different for instance what we we don't have much of that we have a little fellowship in la uh, of sexaholics anonymous but we have all the other fellowships that are bigger and more um well known so is is that basically your understanding of the, the context uh, of, of SA? yes but here's a few more things that i will add to sure. that it did not originate in tennessee it actually originated in california and you could do some research on, on this and on the founder of Sexaholics Anonymous. Um, he, he is no longer living, but he does have a book out there. I don't remember the name of the book, uh, but I'm sure you can find it on their website. Um, you could probably also find the history of Sexaholics Anonymous on their, on their website. They relocated to Tennessee because because that's a region of the country that really grabbed their model of sex addiction mm. recovery and ran with it. Um, but, you know, another challenge for me is that so many of the proponents of sex addiction, they understand that Sexaholics Anonymous is a real outlier, but they all list it as a resource 
in their manuals and their books. So they've never challenged it. They've never said, you know, this is discriminatory in terms of how you set up your sobriety model. Um, they, they continue to endorse it by listing it as an option. Mm-hmm. Now, when I last counted, there were five different 12-step programs that addressed sex addiction. There may be more than that since I, I counted last, but, uh, and I'm not against 12 steps. I think that 12-step recovery has helped lots of people get sober and stay sober from drugs and alcohol, and it's, it's, it's valid. Um, it's, it's all over the world. It's easy to access. It's free. There are many wonderful things about 12-step programs. So I'm not anti-12 steps, but I am anti us continuing to look at sexuality through a lens of addiction and using 12 steps to um, help people think of their sexuality as being addictive mm-hmm. or think of themselves as being addicts. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the clarification. I, I had no idea that Sexaholics Anonymous started in California. I would be curious what part of California but that's a whole nother podcast, I suppose, to go through the history. Yeah, and I've, you know, I've done a lot of reading and research on it. I, I, I don't want to share things right now because I don't have those facts in front of me. Uh, and so I don't want to make stuff up. Yeah. But, you know, if, you're re- if your listeners are interested, it, it's out there. I'm wondering, Stephen, what is the most important thing that one can do to get control over their compulsive sexual behavior? Uh, Well, mindfulness is something that I use a lot. I use a lot of uh, cognitive behavior therapy with clients. I do a lot of sex education because, you know, sex education is not allowed in most parts Mm. of this country. And so uh, most people don't have just a basic understanding of what is typical when it comes to sexual thoughts, sexual behavior. Uh, just educating people, helping them see that they're right in line with the way so many other people think about sex uh, in itself gives them some power and some control. I also help them to explore some of their attitudes, why they feel shame about some things that are really pretty innocent. An example I will give you. Um, And I I heard this in Nashville quite frequently because it is such a strong evangelical community, men feeling shame about noticing attractive women when they are out in public Mm -hmm. and uh, wanting to be able to go out in the world and see women and not have sexual thoughts about them, um, to not objectify them. And, you know, it might be specific body parts like breast or legs or, or butt. Um, but, you know, they really had this expectation that I need to not be having these sexual thoughts. And, you know, thoughts, quite often we don't have any control over what comes through our head. Uh, the way we judge people and judge character is by behavior. So, you know, I personally have all kinds of thoughts all day long that I never act on. Uh, and I call that impulse control mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and self-awareness uh, and, you know, and, and mindfulness. So 
and I would say to men, you know, if if you no longer find women attractive, then who are you as a sexual mm-hmm. being? Because straight guys, you know, they they like looking at breasts and butts and legs and uh, women in sexy clothes. You know, gay guys not so much, but the straight guys are all about it. So if we eliminate this and you no longer have sexual thoughts, then who are you really as a sexual being? Is it the thoughts that you need to be so ashamed Mm -hmm. of? Or how does that sync up with your actions? How are you doing at managing those thoughts? Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So if I can just add a few words that came to me as you were talking, I, I hear you really emphasizing a sex positive, sexual health approach to really anything that that naturally arises within someone so if somebody is having a particular impulse it's not the impulse that counts it's how how they deal with it right and and so of course it's only human to to at times get turned on to other people but do you act upon it and 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 seduce somebody or or do you notice it be curious about it and like you said be mindful of where you are and and what you're doing so that you can shift your energy elsewhere and and not get into some kind of um difficulty around it yeah and i have the same discussions with clients about anger you know i have people who feel bad because they get angry um you know they might feel like i need an anger management class, or I need, you know, a book on anger management. Uh, anger itself is a normal human emotion. Uh, it, 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 um, you know, some people say it's necessary for survival, that it's the flip side of fear. Um, and so anger itself is not a problem. Sometimes the way we behave when we are angry, if you punch somebody in the face or you call them a bad name mm-hmm. or, you know, you break things and throw things. That's problematic, but that's not the emotion itself. That's the behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I heard a moment ago you sharing about sex education and and really being able to share with your clients in, in an on, honest conversation what they may never have been able to hear before, because of course, in our schools, we don't get it. With our peers, it's kind of a blind leading the blind oftentimes that for kids growing up. So maybe the first person they're having this kind of conversation with is, is you. Right. And you know, someone else who doesn't get it are our therapist. You know, I completed graduate school. I was licensed. I could diagnose and treat sexual disorders, but I was never required to take a single mm-hmm. course in sexology or human sexuality. That's true for most health, most healthcare providers in general. Some of my clients are healthcare providers mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, they know a, a lot about anatomy and physiology, mm-hmm. but they don't know much about mm-hmm. sex. They don't know much about um Uh, sexual response cycles. They don't really understand how their sexual thoughts can influence their sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think education is uh, really vital. And I, you know, I coach people, if you're going to be seeing a therapist individually or as a couple, 
and you feel like you need to talk about sex, make sure you're seeing someone who actually has some training mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. sexology or a, a solid background in human sexuality because so many therapists are just winging it, mm -hmm. you know? That, that's kind of where I started. It's why I decided to become certified as a sex therapist and get more mm -hmm. training in sex therapy. I had people coming to me with questions and issues that I knew absolutely mm -hmm. nothing about. Um, I wanted to help. I wanted to be a resource, but I was aware, you know, I just, I'm in over my head here. I've got to get some mm -hmm. more training on this. Thank you for saying that. I mean, that's so vital for everyone to understand that, that not all therapists are trained similarly and to really find someone with that specialized training, for sure. I wonder, Stephen, if you could share a little bit about what role does biology play in, in human sexual behavior? Uh, well, I think biology plays a huge role in lots of aspects of human behavior. Uh, you know, there's, uh, is it nature, is it nurture? That's the question that we mental health providers ask so frequently and and actually it's a combination of both but in utero there are lots of things that are happening before we're born that is uh putting our sexual wiring in place that influences uh the genitals that we're born with uh the way we think about ourselves in terms of our sexual identity our sexual uh our gender identity um, some theories suggest that even sexual orientation is predetermined in utero. But, you know, we come out of the womb with our bodies already designed to be sexual bodies. All the nerve endings are already in place that give the genitals pleasure when they are touched. Uh, and because we don't allow sex education, we, we are in this place where we think that people don't become sexual beings until they're 18 years old when it's legal. Um, but, you know, many of my clients, male and female, recall having sexual thoughts, uh, sexual desire, and possibly even engaging in masturbation in childhood. And these are not people who were sexually abused as children. These are people who just discovered, you know, with their body, this feels good. When I touch myself here, I like it. Um, you know, there are certain people that when I'm around them, I feel excited, I feel attracted. People with who identify as being transgender say that they were aware of their gender identity in elementary school or before. It's not something that they just decided mm -hmm. after they turned 18. It's not something they decided at 13. And uh, another thing that I tell my clients is that biology will trump religion and politics every time. The biology of who we are as sexual beings is not consistent with what our culture tells us that we mm -hmm. should be. And that's true in many levels. You know, at, at 13, we can parent mm -hmm. children. Now, we don't want 13-year-olds being parents but biologically mm -hmm. we can do it. So, you know, biologically, just innately, we're already wired and designed to do something 
that our society mm -hmm. says we shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. So again, switching gears a little bit, when you're working with couples, but what would you say is the most important thing a, a couple can do to improve their sexual connection or sexual relationship? The most important thing is to talk about sex. And it is so difficult to get couples to do that. Even when one or both of them says, I want more transparency. Mm -hmm. I want more intimacy. There are aspects of their sexuality that they feel so fearful to talk mm. about Often ask couples if they masturbate in each other's presence. And most of the time, they're just absolutely appalled by that. Mm. Absolutely not. I could never do that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's private. You know, um, that that's something that I keep to myself. That's something that if I did it, my, my partner, or my spouse would be offended. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, people will go to the bathroom in front of their partner. They'll urinate or defecate in the room with their partner right there at the sink, shaving or putting on their makeup, but they won't masturbate in front of them because that would just be too private, too personal. Mm -hmm. That is how our culture has taught us to think about sex, while at the same time, we're trying to be monogamous with this person. You're the only person in the world that I can have sex with in this relationship but you're not going to talk to me about sex. How do you explain that? It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are books uh, that people can read to help them initiate discussion with their partner. There are games that people can play, or you can just sit down and take turns asking each other questions. Mm -hmm. But nothing should be off limits. And just to add to what you just said, that may be the time to to find a really terrific clinical sexologist that they can sit with and open that conversation in, in a safe and productive way. Right. Um, but yeah, I am a really terrific clinical sexologist, <laughs> but some of my clients are uncomfortable when I suggest to them, I want you to talk to each other more about sex. Uh -huh. uh, I say, let's let's invite sex into your house. Let, let's make your house sexy. Mm -hmm. You know, what are, what are some things that when your partner wears them, you think it's sexy? Start dressing that way for each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, watch some sexy shows. What are mo what, what's music that you find sexy? Mm -hmm. Play that music in your house. You know, uh, let your home be a place where sex is welcome, where sexuality is welcome. Mm -hmm. That, that, that's terrific. We sometimes forget in the day-to-day -day domestic nature of our lives that our home is really a sacred place and can be a, a, a place where sexiness and erotic fun can, can take shape and hopefully grow. So I, I appreciate the reminder. Um, one last question, Stephen. What I wanted to ask is from our discussion today, what would be a takeaway or two that, that you would really like to, to emphasize uh, for our listeners? I would like for them to remember that it's okay for them to be themselves. And that sounds really simple. I, I, it's a title of a chapter in my book, 
it is really the hardest thing to do because we all fear rejection. We all fear if I really let you know who I am, you're not going to like me. But, you know, that's what intimacy is about. It's me being completely vulnerable with you and it's safe and you still love me anyway. You know, it's why the subtitle of my book is Finding the Courage to Be Yourself, because it's scary to let people know who you are. Sometimes it's even scary for us to let ourselves know who we are. There are many closets that people are in, uh, and I'm not just talking about sexual orientation. You know, sometimes that's one closet that people come out of, and then there's another closet. I'm also a little kinky. How do I talk to my partner about that? Mm-hmm. Um you know, there, there might be even another closet that I need to come out of. And that is that um, my primary means of enjoying sexual pleasure is masturbation. I love my partner. I like sex with my partner. But what I really enjoy the most about sex is solo sex by myself. So uh, the thing is be yourself. Mm-hmm. Lean more into that. And often people will respond with, well, you know, what if it gets out of control? Or what if it's something bad? Well, most of the things that we like are not illegal. And as long as you are engaging in something that is consensual with another person who is, is legal and everybody involved is participating and is in agreement with it, then it's an opportunity to explore parts of yourself that you might be uncomfortable with but this is a way to help you lean into it and get more understanding of it. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. I I really, really appreciate the perspective and um, you joining us from the other coast. We don't always have East coasters here. So thank you for being here today and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths in in the future. Uh, I would like that. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Thank you for listening today. It was so terrific sharing the time with my colleague, Dr. Stephen Davidson, and discussing this really significant topic of sexual integrity. He can be reached through his website at sexualintegritycoach.com. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected.